human vessel, I have limitations um, and I have weaknesses. And so God, in uh, attempt of weakness, I pray, I pray, oh God, that your name would be magnified and glorified. Um, and as John the Baptist uh, once said, um, may I decrease so that you may increase. God, I just pray, oh God, that your gospel would be clear. Uh, it would do uh, as it pleases, do as it wishes. I pray that it would convict hearts. I pray that it would encourage hearts. I pray, oh God, that we would leave today with a greater um, understanding of who you are and all of your greatness and all of your glory. You are a good and gracious God, and we praise you, and we pray for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you all to think to yourselves for a second. I'm going to ask this question and think to yourselves for a question uh, for a second and try to answer this question. What is good news? What is good news? Just try to answer that to yourselves. What is good news? Well, how about for starts? Good news is an announcement. It's a heralding of something that good happened. Something good has taken place. And if that something good has happened, that means that we rejoice. It means that our hearts are gladdened. And if that something good, that good news, has already happened, then that announcement means that there's usually a broader context. There's usually a background story. When we hear news that's good, there's usually something that is led up to that heralding. And in light of what has taken place, this good news usually also does what? Well, it reveals what happens next. What happens next? Now that this great news has happened. And this news typically has implications now for how those recipients of the news will now live. In other words, what are they going to do with the good news? And so today as a church, we're going to begin a story, a series of stories through the book of Mark uh, about this good news. And so you can go ahead and turn, turn to the book of Mark. Um, but before we, we sort of dive into Mark, I want us to take note of the way that Mark opens up his gospel. Uh, and it's very unique, uh, the way Mark opens it up versus how the other gospel writers do. So you got Matthew, Luke, and John. And Mark says in the opening verse, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice how he uses that word gospel. We're all familiar with this word gospel. Well, in the Greek, that word gospel is ewangelion. Ewangelion. And that means, in the Greek, that means good tidings, or, or very literally, good news. And so Mark's opening up this story by saying this, what I'm about to tell you, this account of Jesus' life and ministry, his death and his resurrection, this is good news. And so I want you to know, my readers and my hearers, that this is good news. And so it's very unique the way he opens up his gospel. It's not that the other gospel writers didn't believe the same, but Mark is trying to tell us something here right from the gate. 
And so today we're going to look at this prologue. We're going to look at the first 13 verses. Um, and we're going to discuss it. And it is my hope that as we are in this passage that we would hear the good news that Mark is going to unpack, that already we would encounter good news uh, in this passage and that we would see that there are massive implications for this good news and what we do with it. So let's go ahead and read. We'll read the passage and then we'll get into this. Beginning with verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this sermon has really one main idea, and I want you all to just grasp this main idea, and I want you to hold it close as we're, as we're uh, working through the passage. And the main idea is this, this declaration. The good news is that final salvation has come, and it is found in the Messiah Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I will repeat that one more time. The good news is that salvation has come, and it is found in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and from this idea, from this main idea, I want us to pull out three truths. We're going to hang on to these three truths. The first is this. We can trust God because he keeps his promises. We can trust God because he keeps his promises. Second, God uses us, God uses us to announce his promises. And thirdly, God enters into our wilderness to save us. God enters into our wilderness to save us. Let's begin with the first one, that we can trust God because he keeps his promises. We can trust God because he keeps his promises. 
Well, if you're like me, you might, you might gloss over this passage. You might just look it over and you assume it's important. I mean, after all, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And you'll see things in this passage like a story about a weird dude who is uh, eating locusts and honey. He's dressed really, really strangely. Uh, and you'll see that this passage talks about the Holy Spirit. You see the word baptism. You see the word repentance and confession. And for those of us that have grown up in Christian, Christian tradition, Christian community, these terms are familiar. We've heard these things before. So you might gloss over it and say, yeah, I, I think I know what those mean. Uh, it should be important. They're familiar. But I don't want us to just gloss over this today. I want us to go a bit deeper and I want us to go a bit further. Because this passage actually has profound significance. It's not just an introduction. It has cosmic significance. We're seeing something take place in this passage that was foreordained before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. We're seeing something in this passage that was also foretold a few hundred years prior in the Old Testament. We see, we'll see some prophecies here today in this passage that were talked about uh, three to five hundred years uh, before Mark's gospel. So what we're, what we're seeing here is not merely an introduction. It's a pivotal moment in salvation history. This is the culmination of God's promises kept. This is an introduction to the Son of God and an inauguration of His glorious work and final redemption. So, the Israelites here. Let's, let's go into the setting. The Israelites are coming out in mass. They're coming out in mass from all of the region of Jerusalem and all of Judea. There's a ton of buzz in the air. There's this wilderness dude who's dressed kind of strange, and he's preaching this message. And there's a lot of buzz in the air about this John the Baptist. And these Israelites, they're not just interested in hearing some new enlightened teaching of the day. They're not going to go out to, to hear this guru, this, this kind of weird guru. The Israelites of this setting, they're quite familiar with their Old Testaments, and they're quite familiar with their heritage and the wilderness tradition specifically. They understood the significance of this John the Baptist being out in the wilderness. They would have remembered their rich history. They would have remembered God's covenant promise to Abraham to make him a great nation and to one day give him a land. They would have remembered their captivity in Egypt when they were slaves and how God kept his promises alive rescuing them miraculously from the suffering of slavery. They would have remembered how God sent plagues onto Egypt to judge them for refusing to cooperate with God's demands to let the Israelites go. They would remember that God then sent a prophet in Moses to lead them out, parting the Red Sea, crossing dry land as the Israelites were coming after them, and the waters closing up over the, the, the Egyptians judging them further. They would remember that their God went before them into the wilderness in a fiery flame. These Israelites of this first century context, they would have cherished the promises of God and they would have kept these stories alive. They would have heard them over and over again. They would have recited them in their households. The rescue that God provided them thousands of years before this point the great exodus, for those of you who are familiar with this story. This is familiar to them. But these first century Israelites are in kind of a strange period of time. They're kind of beginning to grow restless. 
After all, it seems like God is beginning to judge them. They hadn't heard from a prophet for 300 years, so they're just sitting around waiting for this prophet to come and give them the word of God. They have no, they no longer have control over their promised land. They're under the, uh, the power and the authority of the Roman Empire. And they're wondering, has God forgotten us? Has God forgotten about us? Is the end of the world coming? Are we going to be judged? Have we been abandoned? Well, let's notice uh, here in verses 2 and 3 how, how Mark cites some Old Testament passages. Look at these Old Testament passages in verses 2 and 3. Uh, Mark is, um, I, I, I call this a citation smoothie. Because Mark is actually using a blending of citations. He's quoting Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 43. And he's blending those together from another Old Testament passage, which is Exodus 23, verse 20. And he's and these passages are speaking of one who would come to prepare the way of the Lord. One who would come to prepare the way of the Lord. And these verses were written, like I said earlier, hundreds of years before. Israel, these Israelites are familiar with these passages. They would have heard them spoken together. Their rabbis often used these two verses together and would preach them to try to give the Israelites hope that someone would come to prepare the way the Messiah would come. So they're very familiar with these verses. And they knew that this prophet would indeed come. If God keeps his promises, then a prophet would indeed come, crying out in the wilderness and preparing the way of the Lord. So... Here comes this weird, strange, guru-type guy, John the Baptist. He's out in the wilderness. He's sort of like a voice crying out. It's just like these Old Testament passages predicted. And so when these Israelites started to hear of this preacher, they're starting to get excited because they have this context. They have this history. They have these predictions from the past. And all, all of these Old Testament scriptures started to ring in their heads. And so they're asking themselves, could this be the time that Jesus, the Messiah, finally comes and rescues us? Now, we know if, if we were to read the rest of the, the New Testament, we know that these uh, are actually the rest of the Gospels. Uh, we would know that these Israelites didn't quite understand how it would all work out. Uh, they were longing for a Messiah, but the Messiah that they were hoping for was sort of this militaristic type of rogue leader who would come and help them take back Israel from the Romans and help them get their autonomy back. So they were they were thinking, this guy is going to come with fire. This Messiah is going to help us get our nation back. So they didn't understand how it, how it all worked. But they were hoping that the end of their oppression was near and that their idea of a Messiah would come soon. Well, we see that God continues to keep his promises. In verse 4, it says that that voice crying in the wilderness, he does show up and he does, uh, he does prepare the way of the Lord, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist shows up. He arrives and he fulfills the promises that were made hundreds of years before. I mean, look at this. John the Baptist shows up in direct fulfillment of prophecies written hundreds of years before. That should jump out to us and say that we have a God who indeed keeps his promises. And the Israelites would have known, okay, 
God is keeping his promises. And this should be an encouragement to us that God does keep his word. So I want us to just kind of remind ourselves in the here and now, in the current context, what are some promises of God from Scripture that we know to be true? What are some promises of God from Scripture that we know to be true? And I'm just going to rattle some of these off. I won't give the references, but I want to speak these declarations of God, God's word and his promises over you. How about this? He will never leave us nor forsake us. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. He will meet all of our needs. If you call on him, he will answer you. He will never give us more than we can handle. He will never give us more than we can handle. Wow, it's encouraging. How about this one? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So church, our, our charge from this first section here is that in a world that is fickle, in a world that is full of lies, in a world that breaks promises, let us trust in his word, let's trust in his word that he keeps his promises, and let us trust in this God who keeps his promises. Which brings us to the next point, that God actually uses us to announce his promises. God uses us to announce his promises. So you, you hear that, you look at the passage and you're like, how do you get God uses us to announce his promises? So I want to say, hold on to your horses. Let's not ride ourselves into the story here uh, quickly because I don't want to take anything away from the significance of specifically John the Baptist. John the Baptist plays a unique role in redemptive history. Mark and all of the other gospel writers, they want us to know that John the Baptist is a crucial figure. And arguably, yes, I'm going to say this, arguably the most crucial figure outside of Christ in all of the Bible, John the Baptist. The most crucial. You might be thinking, that sounds a little bit crazy. We have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have Moses, Noah, David. How about Paul, Peter, James? These are all really important figures in the, in the uh, history of the Bible, right? John just kind of shows up. He shows up very quickly at the beginning of all the Gospels, and then he fades out really quickly. You're telling me that this is the most crucial character in all of Scripture. Well, let's look at what Jesus actually has to say about him. If you remember uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus says this about John the Baptist. He says, Truly I say to you that among those born of a, of a woman, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus is agreeing that, that John the Baptist is a crucial figure. And here's why. Because Jesus understood that the good news the announcement of his coming was bound up with a forerunner, was bound up with someone who would, would prepare the way for him. An Elijah-type wilderness prophet who would link the Old Testament with the New. The Old Covenant with the New Covenant. John Piper, he's a great uh, American preacher, John Piper describes John the Baptist this way. And this is a, a paraphrase, so bear with me here. 
Um, but he describes John the Baptist as the root of a tree. So if, if you've ever seen a large tree, there are a ton of them around uh, Johor, but just a large, regal, mighty tree with these roots that are just so big and they're weaving around, even, even coming out of the ground, sort of forming a little stump on the side and maybe even breaking through concrete. Picture that kind of a tree. Well, John, John Piper says that John the Baptist is like that's that root, that stump that's coming up out of the ground. And that stump is connected to a root that's weaving back into the soils of the Old Testament, connecting all the promises of God, pointing forward to Jesus. Except when that root comes out of the ground, this John the Baptist, as a voice in the wilderness crying out right now, that root is saying, but don't look at me. Look at the tree. Look up at the tree. This is what John the Baptist was he was a root, a mighty root, connecting the Old Testament, but still in the tree, still linked with the tree, the giver of life, Jesus, but pointing to the beautiful tree that's actually the glory of that root. So onto the scene, John comes. He has this intertestamental mission to prepare the way of the Lord. And let's, let's look at how he does this. How is he doing this? Well, he's preaching. He's preaching. He's preaching that a great turning point in history has come. Salvation is at hand. The dawning of a new age is here. As uh, uh, William Lane uh, says in his commentary, he says, The beginning of the unfolding drama of redemption, which centers on Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 4 tells us that John the Baptist is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And verse 5 shows that the masses from the surrounding regions, they're drawn to this wilderness prophet to hear his summons. Confess your sins. Repent. Be baptized. Repent. Confess your sins and be baptized. So a hallmark of, of John the Baptist, this was probably different for the Israelites, was that he was actually baptizing people. That's why he's called John the Baptizer. It was actually called John, yeah, they were calling him the Baptizer of the wilderness. Um, so a hallmark of what he was doing was this baptism. And this was an act of going under the water, symbolically identifying death and departure from the old sinful self, and then being washed and cleansed by living water, the Holy Spirit. And then coming out of the water, a symbolic of new life, uh, I'm sorry, a symbol of new life in Christ. But John's baptism was slightly different than the baptism that we're familiar with as Christians 2,000 years later. John's baptism was a preparation for the forgiveness that Christ accomplished through his death and resurrection. It was just a preparation. But the gist of John's message was this. Christ is coming soon. The time is now to get right with your creator. Christ is coming soon. The time is now to get right with your creator. John was not concerned about making his followers, all these people coming out, do rituals of his own. He wasn't trying, like I said, he wasn't trying to be a guru, adding all of these lists of do's and don'ts that you have to do on top of repenting. John wanted to be faithful at all costs. He wanted to confront people in their sin with the message of salvation that would come. 
and he wanted to exalt Christ. He wanted to make much of Christ. And then look at what the Lord was doing in the hearts of his hearers. In verse 5, what does it say? It says the multitudes, speaking of the multitudes, responding in obedience, confessing their sins, and welcoming his baptism of repentance. So just a, a, a quick sort of charge here. May we as Christians look at the faithfulness of John. He was, he was preaching a bold message, saying, repent, turn from your sins. It's pretty difficult to do that. And this is John. He's out there at all costs being faithful, saying, I must give this message. So may we look to John the Baptist in his faithfulness and his courage to preach this message. And that we, in our own proclamation, uh, would do it with boldness and faithfulness. Uh, just one, one other standout feature of John the Baptist, who was beloved of Jesus, was his humility. We, we're all familiar with John the Baptist's humility. In verse 6, even, even just verse 6 mentioning his wardrobe and his diet, I think that that speaks of his humility. Uh, it, I mean, it's definitely weird, okay? Like, it's, it's just, it's a little bit weird. I can imagine, I mean, I think I've seen like hipsters today wearing like camel hair jackets and stuff, but it would, it would have been weird to see this guy. Why is he eating locusts and honey? I don't know. But I think that, that speaks of his humility. I think that speaks of the simplicity of his lifestyle. This is a man that spoke a simple message, but he was content with little. And then, of course, you have to look at his message. His main aim was to preach that one after him would come mightier. One after him. Mightier than he. You think about John at this point, he's got thousands coming out to hear him. He's got a pretty large following. It's like, I mean, he could just plant a megachurch out there and kind of just get his thing going. I mean, he is a popular kind of celebrity type figure. And he's a human being. Pride very much could have puffed up in his heart. And he could have compromised. And he could have stolen just a little bit of the glory. Just a little bit of the glory. But in, uh, in John chapter 3, verse 30... You'll remember that John the Baptist actually says this. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And then he says here uh, in, in this passage that I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of the one who comes after me. It's verse 7 there. An old German theologian made light of the fact that not even a Hebrew slave was required to ever touch the feet of his master or put his shoes on him or touch anything related to his master's feet. Yet John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, I'm not even worthy to touch the feet of my master, Jesus. John wanted to get out of the way. He wanted to get out of the way so that Jesus, the Son of God, might have all of the glory. He didn't want anyone to say, that's the Messiah, that's him. We see in, John, in the Gospel of John, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, he says, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. He didn't want anyone to get it twisted. Well, faithful and humble was he, but around 33, this faithful and humble guy who seemed to be getting a lot of traction, a lot of attention, um, he was actually imprisoned and beheaded. So his bold, simple message eventually 
it, it opposed the message of the world. And so it got him killed. I was reading uh, from this Puritan this week, uh, J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle is a great Puritan. He, he wrote this book called Holiness. I think it's one of the best books ever written on, on sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ. And, uh, and J.C. Ryle, um, he says this about what it means to be a faithful minister, a faithful minister um, in relation to someone like John the Baptist. He says this, the principal work of every faithful minister of the gospel is to set the Lord Jesus fully before his people and to show them his fullness and power to save. The next great work he has to do is to set before them the work of the Holy Spirit and the need of being born again and inwardly baptized by his grace. These two mighty truths appear to have been frequently on the lips of John the Baptist. It would be well for the church and the world if there were more ministers like him. So church, God used a human preacher, a man, a mere man, John the Baptist, to magnify his name. And I want to say that God still uses heralders, human preachers like us, to carry on the message of John the Baptist. That the Messiah has come, repent and believe the gospel. And so another charge for all of us is that if we've received the greatest news, the greatest news of the gospel, the greatest news that has ever been told, we have it, we've heard it, then we must proclaim it and we must ask the Lord to give us courage. We must ask the Lord to give us humility like John the Baptist. We must ask him to give us faithfulness to proclaim the gospel, this good news, to everyone who's around us. Which brings us to the final and most glorious point of today's message. That God enters into our wilderness. God enters into our wilderness. So a bit, bit of background about me. I'm from Arizona. I hail from the wilderness. I, uh, Arizona is a state in southwestern uh, part of the U.S. It's famous for being a, a desert state. Grand Canyon, if you've heard of the Grand Canyon, it's there. And so I grew up in literally in the wilderness. I, I, I guess when I was growing up, it just seemed normal to me. But now that I go back, I'm like, wow, this isn't normal. I, I grew up seeing these grand desert vistas, big skies, endless skies, um, dry kind of rugged land I would always um, sort of imagine cowboys and, 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 uh, and American Indians and I would read westerns and um, this this is where I grew up I'm a product of the wilderness uh, and I remember uh, when I was I don't know exactly the age but I must have been a teenager uh, early teens maybe 13 14 and I went on a hike with my my friends and we were all wilderness kids so we're like We'll just go out on a hike. We'll go into the mountains somewhere. We'll go, um, I think we were looking for a canyon. We'll go out and look at this canyon. Uh, and then we'll just come back later on. And so uh, here we were, we were with our friends. We were very foolish. We didn't pack a whole lot with us. And we brought uh, just like one water bottle for each person. And we went off into the wilderness. Uh, and I remember uh, we, we were going there and I already had probably drink three quarters of my water bottle. <laughs> and I was just like, just wasn't even thinking about it. And, uh, and we got out to this, this canyon, and I remember thinking, man, I'm thirsty, and I only have a little bit left. Uh, I can't really use much energy to explore this canyon with my friends, so I'm going to sit here, and I'll wait for them, and then we'll, we'll head back. So we explored a little bit, and we started the journey 
uh, journey back. And um, I remember uh, I had very little water, so I asked my, my buddies, hey, do you guys have any water? You know, can I have some of your water? And they're like, we don't really have much left either. And so, but we had probably a couple hours left on the journey. So we started to head back and we were all really thirsty. And I remember thinking, all of us, we weren't saying it, but we were starting to feel kind of worried. We were worried, uh, we were flustered. We started to bicker with each other. And I remember, I still remember just walking on this journey and thinking to myself, this is a hard and unforgiving land. Like everything out here is, it, it seems like it's designed to kill us. There is nothing here about this land that is inviting. There's no oasis. There's no water anywhere. Um, there are cactuses. I remember these bushes called cat claws. Uh, yes, cat claws. Literally, it's exactly how you, you would think of it. This little bush with claws that were the exact same size as cat claws. And they were everywhere. And I remember they were in my shoes all the time. I'd fallen in a few of those. And, and this was the landscape. Everything around seemed to be dying, and everything seemed to be wanting to kill us. Well, we get towards the end of our journey, and we're like, oh, dude, I think we're going to die. And I remember seeing my town, my town just kind of down, uh, down the hill. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, that town is like, it's like our hope. <laughs> this is a picture of our salvation. And it was. It was both literally and figuratively our salvation. That was where we would finally get home, we would get water, we would get a shower, and we would have our family, we would be with our families, and we would eat dinner together and just continue on with our life. And the reason I share this story is because I want us to take this picture of the desert wilderness, and I want us to think about how it perfectly embodies this metaphor of struggle and pain and fear. How about directionlessness? How about escape? We used to run into uh, interesting characters out in the desert, dressed like John the Baptist, and uh, they were they were escaping from reality. Um, and our, and we there were people that would do that because they were afraid. Um, and the desert just has this mystique about it. Well, I'd imagine that this wilderness near the Jordan River to be very similar. I've never been to Israel, but I I'd imagine that that wilderness was very similar. It was harsh and rugged. But for the Israelites, it was more than that. It was, it was a, a metaphor for so much more, their history of struggle and pain in the wilderness. So keep this desert motif in mind, please, um, and follow along. And, uh, in verse 8, tells us that John the Baptist baptized with water, but Jesus with the Holy Spirit, announcing greater the one to come who would baptize and how does Jesus baptize? He baptizes with the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. So John baptizes with water. Jesus baptizes with God himself. And then in verse 9, the Messiah, Jesus, shows up. He's on the scene out of Nazareth of Galilee to the wilderness to be baptized by John in the Jordan. So imagine Jesus. He shows up. There's this crusade going on out in the wilderness. Um, and he's coming out of Nazareth. I always call Nazareth, uh, well, I've been starting to call Nazareth Nazareth this since I moved to Malaysia, but Nazareth is like the Kampung of Kampungs. It is, it was no man's land. And our creator, 
God decided to enter into his creation in the town of Nazareth? Like, such, such humility, such... Um, it, it, he didn't come from New York City. <laughs> like, he didn't show up from Athens. He came, he came to, through Nazareth. And during this time, in the first century context, Nazareth was also not just a place where all the hillbilly Jews lived, but it was also a place where the Jews that were unfaithful and non-pious, the ones that broke the law, they went out to Nazareth. So Jesus came in to the world in a town that was known for a bunch of unfaithful Israelites. And he shows up on, uh, on the scene. In verse 9 here, he shows up on the scene of this big crusade. And just imagine, nobody's noticing this guy. They're hearing about this Messiah. They think it's going to be some militaristic leader. And here comes Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth. I'd imagine him showing up on scene and no one batted an eye. No one even looked at him. Unnoticeable. No trace of, of any sort of Messiah that the Israelites were hoping for. And he shows up to John the Baptist. The one trying to make much of Jesus, he shows up to John the Baptist to do what? To submit to John's baptism. The God of the universe to submit to John's baptism. Now, when I read that, I was like, what is going on here? After knowing what baptism means, it's about repentance. It's a, it's a display of your, your trust and uh, confession and repentance of sin. And Jesus, the Messiah, God, the spotless one, without sin, is submitting to John's baptism of repentance. The one who's going to actually baptize with God himself, the Spirit, who will save sinners and cleanse them from unrighteousness, is going to submit himself to the baptism of repentance. Guys, last I checked, being sinless means you don't have to repent. And that's absolutely right. Jesus did not have to repent. So what is Jesus actually doing here? What is he doing here? And I want to point out a few things of cosmic significance that are going on here. Remember the exodus that we talked about earlier. Um, Israel's exodus from Egypt. Well, that exodus was God's old covenant act of salvation. Where God led a flawed and disobedient Israel out of Egypt. They failed miserably in the wilderness. You remember that first generation with Moses, they failed. They didn't even get to enter the promised land. Finally, the generation after them, they were able to enter into the promised land. And they received a type of salvation. A type of salvation. Sort of like my hometown on that hike. It looked like salvation. Well, the promised land was a type of salvation for the Israelites. But it wasn't a full and final salvation. As a whole, when we read the Old Testament, we see that Israel ultimately failed to serve the Lord. They ultimately failed to worship God. Why? Well, it's because of their nature of sin. It's because of their nature of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They had no ability to follow God and worship Him with perfection. This was Israel's trajectory. You remember the rest of the Old Testament. Israel fails again and again and again. The Old Testament prophets were saying all sorts of things. Mostly, you will be judged. You will be judged. But listen to what the prophet Hosea says. He records God saying this in his 11th chapter in the first two verses. The prophet Hosea records God saying this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. 
And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Well, glaringly obvious in that verse is that Israel has failed by turning to other gods. But notice what he said in the first, what God said in the first part of the verse. He says, he calls the nation of Israel his son. So coming back to Jesus now. Jesus, by submitting to the baptism of John, he is signifying that he is the, the new and better Israel. He is the new and better son of God, son of Israel. And he makes all trust in him. He will make all who trust in him, Jew and Gentile, true Israelites. In the men's Bible study, we've been talking about how the Jews would put their hope in circumcision, this outward sign of salvation or being in God's community. And Paul sort of just completely annihilates that idea. And he says that true circumcision is of the heart. True salvation is of the heart. And so this is what this is what God is saying. That this is a matter of the heart. And true Israelites, true Israelites must believe in me. Jesus is also signifying that Israel deserves the judgment of God for their failures. So Jesus showing up, submitting to baptism, he's saying, yeah, these people do deserve the judgment of God. And all of sinners deserve the judgment of God. And so Jesus, by going into the water, he's showing that he will take the penalty of death for their sins. And coming out of water, he's saying that he will resurrect and conquer death for all of Israel and all of the world. Church, Jesus has perfectly submitted to God on our behalf, carrying our burdens, our sins, our trials, our sufferings, and our punishment. He's not only the salvation waiting on the other side of the wilderness, heaven. He is the one who now enters into our sufferings. He enters into our wilderness. He carries us through the difficult world. He is the Savior that knows our guilt. He knows our pain. He knows our temptations. If you were to read verse 13 here, it says that he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. Being tempted by Satan. The God of the universe being tempted. He knows our temptations. He knows our joys. He knows our tears. And then he goes to the cross to bear it all so that those who place their faith and trust in him might endure eternal peace, eternal rest, and be forever with him. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter, chapter 5, verse 21, he says this, For our sake, he, God, made him Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Our God, our God, church, enters into our wilderness. In him, there is forgiveness. In him, there is rest. So in the, in the coming weeks, coming months, we're going to be working through a series um, 
uh, through the through the book of Mark. And um, this story is good news. And this is the first message of that series. And I and I want us to understand. I want us to know that. I want us to grasp that this is good news. This is good news. It's the announcement that God, in His great love and mercy, sent His one and only Jesus Christ into the world, the wilderness, to save hopeless sinners like us from death and eternal judgment. Jesus did this by coming into the flesh, fully God, fully man, yet without sin. He lived the perfect life that we could never hope to live for, and he went to the cross as a perfect sacrifice, the spotless lamb, to bear the penalty of death for our sin. Taking our place on the cross as a substitute, absorbing the full wrath of God, the full wrath of his Father being poured out on him as our substitute. He died. He was placed in the grave. Three days later, he was raised. He defeated death forever. It says he ascended to return to the right hand of the Father. And he's interceding for us right now. Jesus is alive. This is the good news. And this is the announcement that calls sinners everywhere to repent and embrace the good news for eternal life with God. This is the fuel of Mark's message. You're going to see this the entire way through and I want this gospel good news, the greatest news ever told, I want this to be our fuel as a church, our fuel as a church as we minister to each other. May the gospel fuel our love for one another. May the gospel fuel our love to our families. And may the gospel fuel our love to the lost around us. We receive the gospel in his grace. Not because of anything we would do, lest we, we would boast. God gave us the gospel. We didn't deserve it. We were lost. And in our sin, we hated God. And he saved us. And so it is our hope that this gospel mark would fuel us to share this good news, proclaim it, to herald it to the lost around us. Remembering that we can trust God to keep his promises. We can trust him to use us. The power is in the message. We can trust him to use us to preach it. And we can trust him to carry us through in our wilderness to the end. He who uh, began a good work in us will bring it to completion. This is the good news. May we go in the power of the gospel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this good news. It never gets old. Father, may we preach it to ourselves over and over and over again. If we are Christians, if we say we are Christians, if we say we love Jesus, then it is so important that we know who Jesus is and what he has done for us. God, your word says that we are, as your people, to be ready to give a reason and a hope for the... Um, we're always to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have within us, which is Jesus. So I pray, oh God, that this gospel would, would um, be treasured in our hearts, that we would speak it over and over again to ourselves, because it's not just for the lost, it's for us. We need reminding each and every day of your good news, Father. I pray that we would preach it over and over again, that it would be our treasure, that we would worship you. I pray that as we go out into the world, into the week, um, that we would remember this message of hope, this message that you always keep your promises, that you want to use us and that during our world you've entered into our wilderness you've gone before us 
and that you're a God that we can relate to. You're not distant. You're not far away. You are near, and you are near in Jesus Christ. And I just pray, oh God, that if there are folks here that have yet to grasp the good news of your gospel, I pray that by the power of your spirit that you would open their eyes to see that this is the greatest news ever told. This is their hope. There's no purpose in the world. There's no purpose and hope that can ultimately be found in, in, our, in our vocations, in, in our, our, our hobbies, um, in our addictions, anything. Ultimately, hope and peace is found in Jesus. And I just pray that today this good news would be sufficient for those individuals that they would embrace Christ, turn from their sins, repent, and follow Jesus, the greatest decision they could ever make. God, we love you. We thank you for today. And we pray um, that you would be glorified in our lives. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.